Hi, welcome back to the Village Trader Podcast. I'm your host, Njobulun Zabandi. This podcast is aimed to help new and experienced traders navigate the markets and learn from other traders. This is episode number 49. In this week's episode, I'm chatting with a good friend of mine and founder of JustOneLove.com, Simon Brown, and we're discussing his methodology on death, on his death to a support portfolio. Um, you can check out the portfolio on uh, simonbrown.co.za and uh, I'll leave the link to his present, our presentation on on the methodology on the show on the show notes as well. How are you doing, uh, Simon? I'm good. I'm very good, my friend. Very good. Cold, but uh, you know, cold's not the worst thing. Yeah, it's been terribly cold this past couple of days. Yeah, uh, it it has, and it's only going to get worse. But you know, I still wish I lived in Durban, but I could put heaters on. And <laughs> so there are worse things happening out there. Yeah, yeah, true, true, true. Um, yeah, getting straight into it. Um, can can you take us through the the uh, um the five pillars or the five porters as you as you termed it, um of 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 the you know that that drives the spine of your death till death do a support portfolio, um starting with uh competitive competitive ri- rivalry within industry. Yeah, so, so Porter he wrote a book. It's a terrible book. Uh, don't don't read it. Um, it, it's too dry and the like, but he does talk about those five forces. And as you say, the first one he likes is competitive rivalry within an industry. And that's counterintuitive, right? You'd think you want a company that has no com- com- competition. The problem is, is that if you've got no competition, you've probably got giant size margins. Um, and then that will ultimately, in time, that will attract competition. Let's look at the JSC locally. You know, they had no competition for, well, for a hundred years or more. I, actually, no, I think the, the last exchange, last competing exchange closed down in the in the late 60s, 69, I think, the Union Exchange. Um, and then the JCs was basically competition-free for almost the next 50 years. But, you know, other, 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 other uh, folks looked at that and thought, we wouldn't mind a slice of that. Now suddenly we've got Zar2X, AX, A2X, and uh, and there's even a third one. So you want a, a, a space where there is a lot of competition, but then of course you want the company that leads that competition. I always say, you know, buy the best companies in the best sectors. Don't go buy the second or third or fifth best in the hope that one day they will become better. Buy the ones who are already winning in a, in a competitive space because. They know how to win. They use their winningness, for want of a bad word, to to, to sort of bully the the, the competition. So, so you need that 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 competition. And, and there's an exception there. Sometimes you get legislative monopolies. Uh, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, you, you, you know, if you invested in the JSC, they were essentially a legislative monopoly. But you know, that will always pass in time. So you want spaces where there is huge competition. Take a look at Apple. I mean, Apple is, 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 a, is a behemoth, but they have competition. You know, they've got you know, not just Samsung, there's Huawei, there's all the other different manufacturers as well. And that's an important component of an industry to keep out a threat, essentially, of, of new rivals. Um, and and we, you, you mentioned the, um, uh, uh, you know, the stock not only having uh, competition, but leading that competition or being the leader of, 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 of that market. How, mm. What are the, some of the matrix that you look at to define whether a company is a leader or a legger? So, I mean, it's, some of them are quite simple. I mean, if you're looking at retail, it's about margins, you know, and, and I look at operating margin. So if, if we look at 
so spa is a weird one because it's not it's a different business it's more franchise it's a guild in essence mass mart but if you take pick and pay shop right um, and you just look at their operating margin uh, for 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 20 plus years Shoprite's operating margin has been two, three, four, at points six or seven times better than than pick and pays. Now, Shoprite's is only you know it's about five and a half. It's been as high as six and a half. Um, but that just told you that they were operating significantly more efficiently than 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 pick and pay was. So oftentimes it's just going and looking for some of those those profit margins. Uh, you know, it's it's not so much about going in and looking at IP or patents and, and, and that sort of thing. It's about the sort of margins they can get. And if we take Apple as an example, you know, Apple's margins on an iPhone is multitudes of, of the, the margins that, that Samsung or, or, or the competition are, are making. You know, so it, it is, you know, margins is, is often the best way, particularly uh, in the retail space. If, if you're looking at, at banks, you would look at things such as cost to income, uh, their, their impairments gives you an idea of how efficient they are compared to the competitors. Uh, if you're looking at, at, at mining, you're looking at things such as head grade. In other words, you know, how many grams of gold per, per ton of rock mined are they able to get out of the ground? Uh, their cost per, per ounce of gold in the line. So you're looking at those sort of metrics to try and get a, a sense of, of, of how they compete against their peers. And then you want to buy the winners. Uh, so, so, so different matrix for, for, for different markets. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always the thing. I mean, I, I talk about it lots, you know, there's, there's, there's some sort of fundamental data, which is the same for everyone, you know, revenue, profit, debt, I mean, interest repayment, dividend covers and all of that. But when you delve into the industry, the, the different industries are going to have very different uh, uh, metrics that are, that are bespoke to that particular industry. And, and in South Africa, we don't have, that many different industries. We've got retail, we've got uh, uh, banking slash financial services, although insurance is another whole kettle of fish, which truthfully I've never fully wrapped my head around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got the miners. Uh, manufacturing, again, comes back to, to supply chains and, and margins and the like. So we don't have that breadth of, of, of industries where in the, in the US, of course, uh, there's a heck lot more. Um, so, is, so is it a matter of just uh, pick up the best one or pick up a couple for diversification or you maintain the diversification ah, from a broader perspective? That's a great question. So it depends the size of the industry. Let's take our banking sector in South Africa. There are five big banks. We throw Investec, that's six. Uh, Sasfin is seven. Uh, we bring in some of the other financial services, such as Coronation and the like, yeah, Signia. You know, we bring in the insurers. You're up to 15 stocks. Um, in that space, I'm happy to, to do a couple of things. Firstly, you know, I started with banks, but I ended up talking financials or financial service providers by bringing in the, the insurers and the, the asset managers and the like. And, and you might be comfortable with that, but you might want to break it into three. But even in, in uh, uh, the banking space, I, I always say, you know, don't buy all five or six banks, but certainly buy one, maybe two and there were clear differences. I, for a long time, owned Standard Bank and Capitec because they were so fundamentally different. Yet they're banking, but different. Uh, and then eventually I, I exited my Standard Bank and I stayed with my Capitec. If the sector is a whole lot smaller, uh, if, for example, you, you know, uh, 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 in pick and pay versus shop prop, they're kind of on their own, right? They're pure food retailers. There's only really two of them. Spa's different. Mass Mart's a different beast then you've got to pick one. So it is a sense of how big is that industry um, to really get a sense of, of, 
of how many you want to be buying. I would probably never go more than two. I certainly haven't. That's partly a factor of, 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 of size. Um, our, business, our sectors aren't big enough. Um, and in some of them, for example, let's take diversified miners. And I'm going to throw Glencore out because they also do a lot of trading and the like. We've basically got Anglo-American and BHP Bulletin. And they're both diversified miners, but they're also fairly different. Uh, BHP's got a lot of copper, a lot of iron ore, a lot of energy. They're exiting the energy, uh, whereas Anglo's got uh, uh, iron ore, but it's also got PGMs. Um, and then it's got uh, uh, copper and it's got diamonds. So you could look at them and say, well, actually, they're both great and they're both different enough for me to actually want to own both of them. But I'm typically very nervous about owning both because then you're kind of almost becoming an ETF on your own. No, no, got you, got you. So the, 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 the next one is, is one that we see quite often in the market, um, the threat of substitute product. Um, do you... Yeah. Do, do you watch? Do you watch out for the threats in within the same industry, or do you, do you also look for 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 uh, growth entrepreneurial uh, uh, competitors? So, so you're looking across as well. You're also looking with, with within the industry. You know, threat of substitute product. I mean, Capitex is a brilliant example of a substitute product for the big four banks. Um, still banking. It's just banking reimagined. Banking done much cheaper, both for Capitec and and for the 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 the, the, the um, the, the client. But, but, but it's that, you know, and, and oddly enough, I've actually just recorded my JC Direct podcast and I'm talking, for an example, you know, the iPod ruled the waves for, I don't know, five, six years or so. Um, and then Apple killed it um, with their iPhone, which, you know, no one owns iPods anymore <laughs> because now we just, you know, so we now stream music. But even five years ago, before we were really streaming, our phones became our, our, our iPods. So there is always that risk of a, of a substitute product coming in. Now, Sometimes for a pick and pay or a shop right, that substitute product would probably more be experience than anything else. Um, you know, and by experience, I mean the shopping experience or the discounts or, or something like that. Uh, but in many spaces, I mean, let's take PGM miners, for example. Uh, substitute product, uh, not really, but the threat there is electric vehicles. Uh, where we don't need catalytic converters anymore. Um, gold, not really a substitute product at all. And, and you know, diamonds, absolutely there is. So in, in some cases, it's a much bigger threat than it, than it is in, in others. For most of our, of our JSE market, uh, our substitute products are fairly uh, uh, small in terms of risk, with the exception being financial services, particularly in the, in the, in the insurance space. I mean, you know, Liberty's never really reinvented themselves. They're still selling the same type of products that they were selling in the 80s, and the market has moved on. Um, you know, it's moved passive, it's moved lower cost, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and Liberty, my sense is, really have been left behind by the, the, the sort of new age products that came through. But there's always a risk that you invest in a, in a widget maker. I, I give you an example, on-string machines. And you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say on-string machine. It used to be this big thing that literally plugged into your telephone at home. Um, and when you went out, you turned it on. And when you came home, there would be a blinking message if someone had phoned and they left a, a message for you. And there was a company in the States in the 80s. They were a billion-dollar company. Uh, and they, they their beef was on-string machines. And the, no one has them anymore. Initially, that, that, that new product was... Uh, mobile, where, where my first mobile phone in 1994 
you had to pay 60 cents to get your, your voice message, but then it became free. So now I've got a free answering machine. I don't need one at home. Of course, we don't even do leave messages anymore. I mean, my, my voice message on my mobile says, do not leave a message, send me a WhatsApp, send me an email. Um, so, so there it was a case of an industry that just got completely destroyed. And it wasn't destroyed by a better answering machine. It was destroyed by mobile phones and ultimately by messaging. And that goes back to, to what Henry Ford said. If I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster cars. So often it's not a, a better product. It's a completely new one. Uh, so do you, do, you, do you use this as a filter for, for, for a company not to buy uh, where you see susceptibility of, of um, you know, substitute product or substitute service? Or do you, do you look at it as, um, you know, a, a plus or when you're looking for a, a company's robustness to, to change? So, it, so, so none of these... It, it really make me say, not going to touch it. But what you're looking for is, is you know, I, I'm almost creating sort of a SWOT analysis in a sense. And I'm writing down and I'm making notes, what are those, sub, you know, what are what is my sense of a threat or substitute products? And, you know, in, in the food retail space, what would it be? In, in the clothing retail space, what could it be? Well, it could be online. Um, it could be HMM and Zara coming into, into the country. Uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and, I'm creating lists, and they do a couple of things. One is they give me a sense of how the company's positioned uh, in, in terms of you know threats to, to 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 new products or whatever the case may be, but also then talks around really getting an understanding of, of how um, the, the 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 company is going forward. So I always keep those notes, and I'll go back to them, and I'll have a look at them, and I'll say, well, you know, threat to substitute products. I was concerned about it. Uh, this is what I'd written at the point. So I, I, it gives me something to keep an eye out for so that if I see that, I start to think, hmm, I wonder what's happening there. And for example, with, with Woolies um, and their clothing division, you know, to me, the threat was always the, the foreign uh, 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 clothing retailers coming into our market. Now, truthfully, Woolies clothing never actually got strong enough to, to be a threaten anyone. But to me, it was a case of, you know, do we start to see the Zaras and the H&Ms and the like, the, that sort of, 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 of coming in? Do we see other, because Woolies was, was sort of, always prided themselves on, on quality and therefore a little bit more upmarket and a little bit more expensive. Do we see the Trubers and the Fashini start to move into that space? Maybe the Edgars or something. Um, so it just gives you an idea of what to keep an eye on and, and what to watch out for. Yeah, no, got you, got you. So the next one is, is, is kind of related to, to, to the previous one, which is the threat of, of new entrants, um, which is a particularly interesting one because, you know, at times, um, you know, for example, when you, if you remember Rim and the Blackberries, you know, everybody has mm -hmm. a Blackberry, and today, you know, no one has a Blackberry, really. Um, sometimes it could be new, uh, uh, you know, old, uh, uh, it would be entry, um, not, not new entrants, but people that were, were companies that were there already, um, just reinventing themselves. Sometimes it could be a, a, a new company altogether. When looking at the threat of new entrants, do you look at just the barriers of entry? Yeah, so that is very much around barriers to entry. Um, although you make a good point, I mean, RIM uh, and, and, and Nokia dominated the first decade of this century in terms of mobile devices. Apple only came in 2007, uh, Samsung about the same time. You know, the two leaders in the space right now, 
weren't making <clears throat> mobile phones in 2005, 2006. Uh, now they're number one and two, depending what geographies. Apple's one in America, uh, and then uh, Samsung number one in, in the rest of the world. Um, and, and it is a, it's kind of substitute products. It's also can you know can somebody move into that space? And another example, you know, Capitec, for example, they've now bought uh, uh, Mercantile Bank. So you know that's that's a new entrant moving into the business banking space, which has typically been dominated by the. The, the, the big four, uh, Investec and, and Sasfin. So that is a, a new entrant coming in. Now, the first question is, you know, what are those barriers to entry? In banking, they are giant. That hasn't stopped Discovery spending literally billions. It hasn't stopped um, Time Bank coming in with a, a zero branch model. So, you know, we've seen two new entrants in the banking space, but they came at it from different directions. Time Bank with very low cost, chaos, get pick and pay, all online, in an app, nice and simple. Uh, Discovery, no branches, but spent the, the, the billions developing their, their back end and, and their sort of behavioral finance model and rewards and all of that like. So, so new entrants are often, you know, just a, a, in our example in South Africa, often it's a foreign player coming into our market. Uh, for example, famous brands, you know, if, if we go back 25 years ago, we had, so KFC was in the country, but McDonald's was only just starting to come into the country. And of course, McDonald's directly competes against Steers. Uh, more recently, we've seen some of the, the pizza companies come in uh, with varying degrees, actually with fairly little bit of success, but nonetheless. Um, and, you know, and that's a threat to, to their, their debonairs uh, uh, space. But Pizza has always been an immensely competitive category already. So certainly, you you want to keep an eye on on, on the landscape and 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 you know understand who's coming, uh, uh, what are what are the competitors doing? Is there a company which wasn't a competitor which which sort of starts encroaching in your space? Nando's Nando's has ruled the chicken space along with KFC. Uh, Nando's obviously frame grilled. KFC deep fried, um, and we've seen a number of attempts to for, by other companies to try and break into that space, uh, but ba it hasn't worked. Apart from chicken licking, it just hasn't worked. Uh, famous brands tried Garamondo's, was a failure. Um, uh, the folks uh, who owned, and now I've forgotten their name, who owned the the the, the, the Starbucks, uh, they had a, 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 a Zimbos or Zombos or something that didn't work either. So there's constant threats, but do they get into it? That does it, you know, does, does it actually gain some some traction? And if it does, worth keeping an eye on. No, cool, 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 cool. And the 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 fourth one, um, which which can bring at times uh, quite a bit of controversy with with mono, uh, monop monopolistic pricing and the like, mm. um, the bargaining power of customers um, is is. How much, how much bargain do you want the customer to have and how much bargain do you want the, <laughs> the company to have? Because, uh, for example, you, uh, you know, with, with, with a company like MultiChoice, the customer has zero bargaining power. Um, but on the same breath, there is a, a regulatory th uh, um, risk there to, you know, Ikaza could come and, you know, regulate those prices there. So how much bargaining power are you looking for uh, on each end? Short answer? Zero. I want, the, uh, in the ideal world, the customer has no bargaining power. The problem with that, and I think multi-choice is a great example, 
The problem is you get disintermediated. Firstly, there is your, your in the case of multi-choice, your regulator. Um, secondly, we're seeing streaming services pop up left, right, and center. And, and really all multi-choice has left is original content and sport. Um, and that's, you know, and I'm talking the South African market, the rest of the continent's a, a different story for them. But, you know, that, that puts them in, in a weak spot. I mean, the, the telcos, MTN and Vodacom, used to have absolute power. If you wanted to change networks, you had to change your phone number. Um, and then we did number portability, and suddenly, bang, it, it, it fun, you know, prices just collapsed. Number portability came in, excuse me, about 2008, 2009. And as soon as that happened, and there were other things happening at ICASA in terms of the re regulatory environment, interconnect rates and lease cost routing and all of that were, were, were starting to hurt them. Um, but, but prices just absolutely collapsed. So yeah, in an ideal world, you, you want the customer to have as little bargaining power as possible. Truthfully, those sort of industries are, are typically uh, uh, fairly uh, regulated and therefore your risk is, is regulatory. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, in the food retail, bargaining power of customers. So the customer doesn't have any directly, but they can go somewhere else. You know, I walk into pick and pay, shop right, tin of baked beans, 15 bucks, there's no bargaining whatsoever. But I could walk out of pick and pay and go next door to shop right and, you know, walk out of shop right and go to spa and Woolies and, and Cambridge and, and, and Usave and Boxer. And, and, and so the list goes on. Spa's a shop, et cetera. Um, so in an ideal world, your customers don't have any bargaining power. Truthfully, they do. And then the question is, how strong is that power? How easy is it to retain them? Um, and how do they manage the, the, that relationship? The telco space, they've lost most of their bargaining power. But if you take a contract, you're locked in for two years. And, and that's how they then manage that, 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 that bargaining power there. The other extreme is your fiber to the home, where a lot of the fiber of the home providers uh, because the actual network is an open access network, um, they've got zero bargaining power because the customer can basically give 30 days notice and, and, and change providers. So then it becomes, you've got to be you know, price sensitive, you've got to be service orientated, and you've got to have a, a really excellent product. And that's entirely possible. But uh, that, that then is a, and that's going to be a really, really awesome company if they can manage it. You know, a free host, uh, I think would be an example of, of, of a, uh, a, 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 a telco company, a, a data service provider, who, who really do another one down in the Eastern Cape is Access, who you know I've used both of them, and their service was just absolutely impeccable, uh, quality of service, pricing, everything else, um, because they know that their customers can leave on a whim. Um, you you often talk about um, when looking at companies, you're looking for reasons not to buy. Is too little mm -hmm. uh, bargaining power one of the reasons not to buy a stock? I would think so. I mean, to, you know, it, 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 would, it would concern me. Um, you, you, you want some of it there. And, and you know, to me, it's never, as I was saying a moment ago, it's never going to be one thing that, that scares me away. It's going to be a preponderance of evidence one way or the other. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, uh, it, it would be one of those that if that starts to stack up, that would bother me and, and, and be a, a, a giant red mark which would certainly sway it against uh, thanks, but uh, no thanks. You know, for example, banks, in, in theory, the customer has all the bargaining power, right? You can close your account and move to another bank, no problem. 
except it's not a problem. It's the biggest, most horrible experience that anyone has ever had. I have literally changed banks once in my life. Uh, 14 years ago when I worked at Standard Bank, so I had to open a Standard Bank account. Man, and I still have nightmares about that process. Uh, debit <laughs> orders just going off the wrong bank account, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a, an absolute horror show. So, yeah, I mean, changing banks is easy, uh, but we don't do it because of the 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 the, the process, the schlep, the paperwork, the, the, the horror of it. Okay. So the last one is bargaining power of suppliers. Um, you know, this one is, is, is a bit, you know, difficult to, 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 to kind of look at for me. Yeah. Um, because... You know, some of that that, that bargaining power that is a, a company would not have, they, they, they can just as easily pass it on to the customer, um, you know, in terms of pricing and the like. Uh, what, what are you looking for in terms of bargaining power, you know, to the supplier? Do you want them to have so, a stronger bargaining power? So it's also who is the supplier. And this takes into bargaining power of customers. So let's look at mining companies, for example. You know, who is their customer? Well, that's the market who's buying it. In that case, the customer has 100%. You know, the miners are price takers. The price of gold is set in the market, who's ultimately the customer, and they have to take it. If we look at, at, our, at our food producers, and it's why I don't like food producers, um, because of the bargaining power of supplier. And again, that supplier in this case is the market. If the price of maize goes up, that hurts the chicken guys because maize is an input into chicken. Uh, if the price of wheat goes up, that hurts the, 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 the bakeries, the bread manufacturers, because wheat is an input into bread. Um, but to your point is, who are those suppliers? And, and, and you know, if you've got a, a, an example, there was a company that, uh, and this goes back a decade or more, they made the screens for iPhones. Um, but 85% of their business was, was from Apple and those iPhone screens. Uh, which basically meant that Apple had complete power because Apple could just say, look, if you don't adapt to our price, we're going to take our business elsewhere and then you don't have a company anymore. You know, it's like the mafia coming to you and saying, you know, nice little business you got there, be a shame if something were to happen to it. Um, so in, in, in that case, you know, they were the supplier and Apple was the, the, the customer, but it gave them absolute power in, in that relationship. Some industries, for example, banking, they don't really have suppliers, right? There's not a supplier. I mean, I suppose customers are the supplier in terms of we deposit funds, which they then, you know, on lend as they gear it up. Um, but it's important to understand if there is a, a particular supplier. Hewlerman uh, used to get uh, all of their, and I forget the details, aluminium pellets from the Bayside, uh, Hillside Smelter in, in Richards Bay, which is a, a BHP. Um, and and you know, BHP, if BHP turned around and said we're doubling the price, Huleman had no response except, okay, we'll have to take it. Um, so it, it, oftentimes it's, it's if there's a single supplier or, or, or a single, uh, uh, creates a single point of risk for, for the business in terms of that supplier could be unable to supply, unwilling to supply, wanting to raise prices um, and the like. And, you know, you, you'll see good supply chains who will have as far as possible, they will have multiple vendors coming into the into the supply chain so as to reduce risk to any one um, and, and, and make too much risk there. But you are right. That bargaining power of the suppliers is something that for us as an investor is fairly hard to really see through and see how it goes. In a retail space, um, you know, truthfully, the, the shop right has all the power in, in, in the world. But, you know, the, you certainly could see some of the suppliers sort of trying to flex their muscle. Now, 
you're not going to go to Shoprite and say if you don't if you don't give me a better deal, I'm going to take my product because Shoprite's going to be well, take it where. Um, but in your your sort of mid tier, and you know, I'm thinking of like an ARB uh, who have got their their lighting division and the like, and you know, their lighting division's got a, a range of suppliers, so there's no single supplier who's who's necessarily could could hold them uh, over the barrel, you know, hold them to ransom. Yeah, no, no, gotcha, gotcha. Um, is 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 do, like is is it important uh, for 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 the company's ability to pass on that uh, um, bargaining power or lack thereof to to its customers? Yeah, and ultimately we see that in in, in pricing power, their ability to raise prices. Um, and again, let's go back to Apple. You know, they've slowly over time been able to to, to certainly uh, eke that and 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 make that you know sort of push through uh, uh, price increases. Um, Multi choice was very good with pushing price increases, although I think they've probably hit a plateau with their premium sport packages in in South Africa. Um, you know, so some are, are are easier. Banks are, are very difficult. Although, as I said, we don't leave. Shoprite, for example, if Shoprite pushed the price of their baked beans to seventeen rand, then the customer will know that it used to be fifteen, and the customer will go next door to pick and pay. I mean, a, a customer. So, so, partly because we've, you know, consumers are very price conscious, and particularly uh, uh, if you're poor, and and we have a, a vast. Uh, uh, poverty in our economy, so you know it, it matters. But you know, customers will almost bite off their nose to, to spite their face. Where they'll say to pick and pay, I'm not paying an extra two rand for baked beans, and then they'll spend five rand on transport to go get the cheaper baked beans to pick and pay, <laughs> and feel that they've won. Um, so, but there, there certainly is is a is a very very sort of balancing line there. And in fact, Shoprite then does it the other way, where they have lost leaders. You know, Shoprite was doing the five rand lunches. Um, there's no way they were doing the five rand lunch at a, uh, at a profit. They were almost certainly doing it as a loss leader. But what it does is it got the blue collar worker into their stores at lunchtime. And, and it did two things. It, it created loyalty, but more than just loyalty, because the, the worker buying the five rand lunch, they also know that this is not five rand. This is eight rand. They're paying five rand. So it makes them kind of like ShopRite. And secondly, they're in the store. So, you know, if, if they need to pick up a tin of baked beans for dinner tonight, well, they're here already. Let me go grab the shop right uh, uh, baked beans. No, no. And, and how does risk management fit in into your portfolio construction? So it, it comes from a couple of ways. I mean, firstly, the classic of diversification, uh, geographic, uh, uh, currency and sector. So, you know, not all banks, not all SA Inc., um, and you can get that the geographic, you can get all of that on the JSC. And of course, these days, it's easy to go offshore. When I was starting investing, it was, you know, offshore investing was was you know, something which the billionaires did. Um, so it, it's diversification across different sectors and industries and the like. Um, and, and, and I want different earning profiles and, and, and different currency earnings. But what it's also is and and it's it's more a hallmark of a, of a mature portfolio. You know, when I bought my first share, I had 120 bucks. I bought a share, 100 percent of my portfolio, one share. That's it. Because I couldn't buy two shares for 120 or or 10 shares. What I now do is when I'm looking at my death draws part, I'm typically putting around three to five percent of the portfolio into any stock. If I'm not prepared to do three percent, it's just not worth it. There's no point in having a, a tiny one percent holding or something. So I'm putting about three to five percent into into a single stock, and I'll, I'll even push that up to six or seven. But usually not on one shot. I'll buy a tranche, 
uh, and I'll come back in a week or a month and buy a second tranche, and then again in a week or a month buy a third tranche. Um, and then as stocks start to run and they become outsized in the portfolio, then I'm actually going to start selling them down, which is something which I have debated with, with people and myself forever and a day. And I, I give you an example. The best stock I've ever bought was Capitec. My first buy was 20 Rand. I bought it 40. And then I bought it 200 when uh, African Bank collapsed. Um, but mostly I have been in, and, and the price is now, let's call it 1600 bucks. So, you know, my first purchase is what, an 80 bagger, if, if my math is right. My last purchase is an eight bagger. Um, if I just hung on, I would be markedly better off for it. But there have been points over the last 15 years since I bought my first Capitec, sorry, 13 years, um, where Capitec has been 30% of my portfolio. And that's just too much. That you know, is just too much. Now, some folks will say to you, yeah, but you're basically selling your winner. And I am. And that's the the huge dilemma I have and, and, and the huge, yeah, and I don't know what the answer is because in the case of Capitec, if I'd never sold it, I would be markedly better off as a result. But what if instead of Capitec, we substitute Steinhoff? Um, you know, in, in which case I would be markedly worse off. So, you know, ultimately, as, as you do occasionally get those absolute knock-out-the-park winners, you are truthfully starting to sell those winners over time to sort of keep a balance. And I won't, you know, I don't sell it, say Capitec, it's 30%. I don't sell it all the way down to 5%. I sell it down to maybe 20%. Take that cash, deploy it somewhere else, and then it runs again, grows another bunch, and then again, there it sits at 30%, and so I've got to go and sell it down a little bit again. At, at this point into my portfolio, um, in fact, let me go get a live number. Capitec seems to, I, I seem to have finally, I haven't sold any Capitec in a very long time. Um, and it's only sitting at around uh, 11%. So I'm comfortable with it. Um, and in fact, I've got two other stocks, namely ShopRite and Metroprofile, sitting at about the same weighting. So finally, I seem to have solved my Capitec uh, problem. But, but for years, I kept on having to sell my best stock, which was a horror. Um, do, do, do you have like a, a pricing, uh, um, you know, matrix that you use to, to pick up some stock, whether it's to, you know, to at least that guides you whether a stock is cheap or expensive? Yeah, so on the sell side, no. When I'm selling, it's literally a weighting within the portfolio. Um, I'm not worried about saying the stock is expensive. I'm going to sell some. As long as it's within weight, I'm happy with it. On the buy side, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, as an investor, there's only really two things that we can control. One is what stock are we going to buy, obviously. The second is the price that we pay. And once we've bought it, we don't have control over the dividends, the profit, the price we can sell at. We have control over none of that. So it's critically important that we focus on that price and don't overpay. So what I what I do is, is I get a, and it's a very simple method. I go get seven years of, of price earnings ratio, get an average price earnings, and I want to buy when the, the current, the forward price earnings, in other words, take next year's uh, uh, expected uh, HEPs into the share price. When the forward price earnings is below the, the seven-year average, then I consider a stock to be cheap. Now, that is far from foolproof. Uh, an example, it had me buying ShopRite um, 
up at around, I think, 170 or so. I'm, I can't remember exactly. Um, maybe 160. Uh, and ShopRite hit 100 bucks. Uh, partly that was pandemic, but truthfully, it was under pressure. You know, in 2019, it was trading down at 110. So that was pre-pandemic. Um, it's fine now. It's 155. It's not looking so silly. But it does mean that I'm buying a share and it might continue falling. It might still go lower. But at least I've got it at a price that I consider to be a decent valuation and a price that I'm comfortable with. Yeah. And, and how, how do you decide how low is low? Because the further the stock falls, the more attractive <laughs> it would seem. So, so what I typically do is I will have bids in the market. So, so let's take ShopRite. I mean, I don't have any bids in the market for ShopRite right now because I've got enough uh, uh, stock there. But you know, let's look at ShopRite and I crunch it and I say, look, below, say, 130 Rand, I think ShopRite's offering some value. So what I would probably do is I'd put a bid in it at 128. I'd put a buy-in at 118 and I'd put a buy-in at 108. And, and then I just leave them. And, and, you know, I did that with... Richmond. And I think some of those bids were in the market for over a year, but eventually they all got hit. Um, and, and this was pre the collapse last year from the crisis. You know, eventually they all got hit and, and I got my Richmonds at the better prices. The flip side is sometimes you put those bids in the market and they never get hit. You know, I, I stopped putting bids in the market for Capitech because <laughs> they were just so far away and it just, it never got to, except for that once when, when African Bank went down. So went into creatorship on the Sunday and on the Monday Capitech just collapsed and it was as I said 200 bucks and I'm like I'll have me some of that thank you very much um, so, so there is a risk that you just miss and I'm comfortable with that with stocks that I'm already in but if it's a stock I want to get in I don't want to be too clever with it I will go in and buy it I wanted to buy NASPASS and I was haggling over a 50 cent spread uh, sellers were 248.50 so I put a buy order in a 248, and I never got it. And to this day, I don't own NASPASS <laughs> as a result to save 50 cents. So when I'm buying initially, I, you know, if, if I like the valuation, I go in, as I say, I'll buy a tranche, a third or whatever, and then give it a bit of time. And if I see more weakness, I'll buy more. If the price runs, well, then I'm a price to, a chaser. So uh, with on... on, on uh, 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 on your portfolio, the one you publish on your on your Vanity website, you have about ten stocks. You know, Advertech, BHP, yeah. Capitech, Crooks Brothers, Discovery, um, famous brands, Metrofile, Shoprite, Storage, um, and Woolies. And you always you often talk about the three big reasons why you buy a stock. Is it the same three mm. reasons for each of each of them, or um, each each stock has its own three big uh, reasons? So before I answer that. Uh, I must put a disclaimer on Crooks Brothers. I own that because my nephew wanted to buy a farm. So I got him some Crooks Brothers for his birthday. There's no other good reason to own Crooks Brothers. Actually, I don't know. I've never looked deeply enough, but don't anyone suddenly think I own it. No. So the answer is it could be different for each. You know, so, so for example, uh, uh, ShopRite, it's very much a case of um, you know, significant margins, good presence in the rest of the, of, of, of the continent, uh, and streets ahead in terms of distribution centers. Um, they, they've, they've run into some challenges in Nigeria, and Pick and Pay's finally got distribution centers coming into the space, but you know, it, it doesn't change any of those three. So it, it's going to be a, a different set of reasons for each of those, those, those different stocks. Some of them, such as Discovery, it's a little more leap of faith. 
um, in terms of, because as I said earlier, valuing insurance companies is, 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 is nigh on impossible. But I like, I like what Adrian Gore's doing. I like the nudge model. It, it's sort of, it's behavioral finance. And I fundamentally subscribe to that. Um, but in essence, it is a bit of a leap of, of faith in terms of Adrian Gore and his team at Discovery. Uh, uh, and and when, when, uh, um, how much do the, the, the fundamental picture and the balance sheet of the company factor into your three big reasons um, uh, of buying a particular stock? That's a great question. Probably not as much as expected. So certainly they're part of my initial research, their ability to, to pay their debt off. So things such as uh, debt to, to equity, although truthfully I, I prefer just you know, cash flow. How many times is, is interest payment covered by, by free cash flow? In which can they easily pay off their, their interest component every, every year that they've got, got, got the interest bill? Um, so those are important. But then to me, investing is very much almost in a sense, it's about the stories, right? It's about the, the story behind the business. So it's really focusing on, 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 you know, if I run across, and I haven't got my notes on me, but if I, if I run across any of the, the companies that I hold, I doubt any of the reasons that I hold them is, you know, low debt, for example, um, or, 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 you know, uh, great assets or, you know, a, a great return on assets or something like that. And those are perfectly good reasons. And they're certainly something that I would have, you know, scratched around at, the, at that point in time. Uh, but it's not a, it's not going to be a, 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 why do I hold it? That's just a, that tells me that it's a solid, well-run company. And then I want that sort of layer of excellence that sits on top. And that layer of excellence is what's coming from uh, the, the, the margins and, 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 you know, famous brands. It's one of the big stories about famous brands was the, the time-pressed consumer. In other words, you know, the, the, the couple uh, both work, kids at home, uh, and di dinner's just a nightmare. So, you know, a couple of times a week, they, they on the way home from work, pop in and get themselves some, some takeout, pizzas or burgers or whatever the case may be. Um, and, and, and that was one of the compelling reasons behind famous brands. I think to do with balance sheets or anything. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story behind what drives the the, the growth in, in in famous brands. Okay. So, and, and and what do you do when uh, um, you know the the story remains intact, but the fundamentals have changed so that the stock is getting you know clopped by the market? Do you uh, you know throw in the towel eventually, or um, you know do you st stick with with the with your reasons why you bought the stock? I'll typically stay with it. It depends how bad the fundamentals are and how much of a horror story it is. For example, I for a long time held uh, City Lodge, really liked the business. Um, it at times has traded where the share price is basically trading at the value of the land that they own because they're weird in the hotel space that they own all of their properties. Um, most of the others don't. So, it, it, you know, but then, you know, as, as the pandemic started, I, I was already worried about them in terms of, you know, recessions and GDP growth in South Africa and the like. Um, and then as soon as the first hints of, of uh, uh, the, the, the pandemic started to arrive, and this was February already, I had a long, hard look at, at uh, uh, City Lodge. And I was like, I don't think they can do it. If the pandemic is one-tenth as bad as I think it might be. And truthfully, I didn't anticipate lockdowns and the like. I hadn't, I hadn't even, you know, this was pre-lockdown level. And I just thought this is going to be really, really bad for them and it's going to fundamentally damage their balance sheet. And so I bailed on it. I absolutely did. And truthfully, I also cut my, my, my Centova position 
Um, and I was wrong about Centova. I thought that that global trade would pretty much grind to a halt um, and that Centova would, would be under significant pressure. Uh, and I was right on City Lodge, but I was wrong on Centova. So I'm, I'm, I am keeping an eye on it. The question is always, is, is the damage to a balance sheet or something, is it, is it, is it repairable or not? And if it's repairable, at what price is it repairable? Um, you know, does it require a massive rights issue? Uh, you know, or, or, or is it something that they can trade their way out of? You know, maybe cut back on dividend for a while. Let's take famous brands. Their, their balance sheet has been significantly hurt by their disaster into the UK. Um, it means I haven't had a dividend out of them in, what, two years? And it's going to be another year or two before I get a dividend from them. But they will repair that balance sheet. Um, I think they're coming out of this whole process stronger in that they're getting rid of some of their brands, closing stuff down, et cetera, et cetera. And the core tenants behind why I hold famous brands, for example, time-pressed uh, consumer and uh, famous brands having their finger in all three of the pies, uh, both the manufacturing the franchising and the distribution uh, still to me is a compelling story. So Famous Brands is not currently a great share to be holding, but you know it's also partly driven by, you know, I'm concerned around tax considerations, but I think they can fix that balance sheet. They'll pay down that debt. And in years to come, it will be a horror story we'll talk about, but the company will be firing on all cylinders again. Oh, okay. Do, 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 you, um, do these reasons change over time? And if so, how often do they change over time? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. They certainly will. But if I've, done my, if I've done my job well, then they shouldn't be changing. I mean, ideally never. And what I mean by doing my job well, if I've done my job well, I've properly identified the key drivers of this business. And, you know, barring calamity, those key drivers should remain in, in, in force. Unless there is, you know, if City Lodge suddenly pivoted and decided they were going to be a hospital group, it would be like, whoa, hang on, guys, this is not what I signed up for. Um, but as long as, you know, as long as Famous Brands is, is, is selling burgers and pizzas and some sit-down steaks and everything, you know, broadly what I signed up for remains in place. So I, I, I don't want to say never, but at this point, I can't remember ever changing uh, one, of my, one of my metrics. No, got you, got you. And what's the primary distinguishing factor between your second-tier portfolio and your death dual support portfolio? And uh, how does the stock get upgraded from a second-tier to a death dual support, uh, support portfolio? So the short answer is the death dual part is the stocks that I would, in, a, in an ideal world, hold until I die. In other words, they are my true long-term portfolio. My second-tier portfolio is very much more a trading portfolio. And I might hold those shares I think I held Centova for close to a decade, uh, maybe not quite that long. I held Colgrove for easy, uh, you know, 10 years or something. Uh, Coronation is in there. I've held Coronation for, for absolute ages, et cetera. The point is, is that those are the stocks that I anticipate. I'll hold them, but at some point I'm probably going to have to sell them, either maybe because they're cyclical, Sabanya Stillwater. You know, right now Sabanya Stillwater is going to be printing cash but there will be a point in the next, I don't know, 1, 10, 20 years where Sabanya Stillwater is going to be on its knees because of commodity prices collapsing and et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the second tier is very much stocks that I am looking to, in time, I will be exiting. I will be taking the money and, and running. Can they upgrade into a death to us part? They can. 
again, I'm not remembering any that have, although <laughs> if I can, I should perhaps go and have a, a, a quick gander. I can't, I can't remember. I think City Lodge did. I think I bought City Lodge the first time because it was trading below the value of the land. And that's what attracted it to me. And then I just got to learn the business better and, 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 and chat with CEOs and the like and, and get a much better, much better sense of, of who the hows and, and, and the whys. Um, but mostly they, 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 there's a fairly sort of clear distinction. Looking at it now, I mean, so Sabanya and Renogen are two stocks that will have their boom in our bail. Uh, Coronation will get to a point where its valuation becomes insane. I'll probably take my cash. Purple Group is one that might move into my death to us part. Yeah, and uh, how how do you decide uh, um, that that selling the uh, that selling point or that selling price? Uh, truthfully, quite poorly usually. Um, <laughs> so it, it it's it's I've I've got the story behind it. So Coronation is you know they they grow assets under management, the market grows and they outperform the market. And those three levers all come into their favor. And we're currently seeing the market going up, which is the one lever that they're pulling. They're getting performance fees. That's the other lever that they're pulling. But their assets under management aren't growing. So in an ideal world, Coronation eventually hits all three of those, and the stock starts running again and gets to 100 bucks or whatever the case may be. And then, in a set of results, they lose one of those three. In other words, suddenly... They, the assets under management shrinks or uh, the market starts going sideways or whatever the case is. One of those three levers, they no longer are, are pushing it in the right direction. Then I could take my money and run. The, the mistake I sometimes make is I don't sell 100%. I'll sell 50 or 80% or something. And what I've learned is when, it, when you want to sell, sell it all. And the reason you keep some is that so you've still got some skin in the game. But that's fine, but you've only kept 10 or 20%. So if it carries on running, you're not going to make much money. Uh, and my coal grower, for example, I sold 90% of my coal growers at 21 rand, and I sold the remaining 10% at 9 rand. Why? I mean, why did I keep 10% of my coal growers? Because I thought it was going to 40? No, I didn't. At, at 21 rand, it was, you know, priced for perfection. Um, so hopefully I'm, I, I think I'm getting better at that. Certainly in the last year and change, I've gotten better at, and it's time to sell, sell it all. Do you, do you jump back in? Um, I will, uh, but, but I, I typically, I, I, I like quite a good sort of timeout from, from a process. I'm, I'm quite keen for it to, you know, and let's take coronation. At some point it goes and I, and I, and I, and I, I will get out of coronation either because it's a success or, 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 or not, but let's say it, it works and, Let's say it goes to 100 bucks and let's say I take my money and run. Um, what, what, you know, I'm not then going to a month later say, oh, I'm wrong or something. I wanted to then completely unravel and come back. You know, I was picking up Coronation, I think, was it 38 Rand? Did I get it as cheap as that? I, I, I want to pick them up when they're absolutely you know, immensely cheap. I don't want to pick them up where they're pulling two of the three levers. I want them to have zero of the three levers. No, got you, got you, got you. Um, you know, do do you have any advice for people who are trying to 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 construct their own portfolios? Um, you know, for any rules that they, you know, rules to create rules, you know, in a sense. I mean, my biggest piece of advice, and I said it right up front: buy the best, just buy the best. You know, I, I, and I know what the story is, and I, I use the example. You know, let's say me and you go to the horse races on the weekend, and I know it's a weird thing, but in, we go to the horse races on the weekend, and you know, 
50 meters before the end of the race, they freeze the horses and they say, place your bets. Where do you bet? You, you don't go bet on the horse that's running number seven or the horse that's at the back and think, you know what, that horse at the back, the other 19 horses might all trip and the horse at the back might win. And if it does, I'm going to get paid 100 to 1. No, man, you go look at the top three and you say, right, frankly, the one who's in the front is most likely to win. But uh, we'll have a look at number two and three as well and probably end up buying the one that's winning. Far too often, newbie investors go and look for the down and out stocks and say, I'm going to buy the down and out stock because when it's no longer down and out, man, won't that be an epic story? And they write, the problem is, is that when would it no longer be down and out? And, and the short answer is most companies that are down and out, you know, at best, it's going to be a very, very long time. At worst, it's going to be an absolute horror story. So, you know, buy the winners. Um, don't be scared of them. Go look at at, at charts of, of, of winning stocks, of ShopRite, of Capitech, of those companies that are clear head and shoulders winners. Um, and you can see that there is epic money to be made in just buying the winners. <laughs> yeah, and uh, O'Neill stresses that a lot in his book, um, you know, how to make money in stocks, that um, stocks that are down are down for a reason. Yeah, yeah. And that reason is wrong industry, bad management, too much debt, mispricing. You know, there's a hundred reasons why. Um, it's not just, you know, one little reason like, you know, I don't know, someone left the aircon on and as soon as we turn it off, everything will be fine. It's never one little reason. And 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 oftentimes it's, it's fundamental to the DNA of the company. And then there are exceptions. I mean, Ultron, you know, did a spectacular turnaround. Uh, uh, Invicta, a spectacular. Hideko, spectacular turnarounds. But those are the exceptions. Um, and I'm quite happy to, to let's take a, 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 a Invictor as an example. You know, did I want to be buying it when it was completely and absolutely battered to, to heck and back? No, I, I, will, I, I will happily pay a higher price for better quality. No, no 100%. Now, Simon, uh, let's park it here, um, unless uh, there's something else that you wish to add. No, I'm all good, Jen. I'm all good. It was a fun chat. Cool, cool. Yeah, always great talking to you, man. Um, yeah, that's it for the show this week. Thank you for hanging with us. Um, be sure not to miss another Village Trader uh, episode of the Village Trader app, uh, podcast by subscribing on your favorite podcatcher or wherever we are everywhere with good podcasts uh, aggregated. Do join Simon Brown and myself every Wednesday. Um, yesterday, as you're listening today. Um, but I'll, I'll, the the videos are also up on YouTube. Do uh, so we we're doing these live webinars every Wednesday five thirty. Link to join will also be in the show notes uh, um, below. Otherwise, thank you, Simon, for your time and thank you for listening. Check you next time on the Vitus Trader. Cheers. <laughs>